Good evening. Omicron sweeps the nation. New rules for New York City. Kidnapped victims are released in Haiti, but the story remains a mystery. And a former Minneapolis cop who shot Dante Wright breaks down on the witness stand. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Friday, December 17th, 2021. And we're going to start with a local story. The New York State Court of Appeals last night denied a motion to stay the destruction of a beloved 50-acre park that began last week. That park's on the Lower East Side, abutting the East River. It's known as East River Park. Co-counsel's author Schwartz and Catherine Freed had charged that Mayor de Blasio was in contempt of court for ignoring the court order issued last week. That failed to delay the plan. The city says will close the park for five years, one of few parks serving the crowded Lower East Side neighborhood. Meanwhile, East River Park Action posted the document online. The court said the stay was academic, apparently because the city had ignored the stay, known as a TRO, to halt the destruction of 1,000 trees. The court also denied a motion to hold the city in contempt. The Court of Appeals gave no reason for the denial. At least five park defenders have been arrested protesting the city's action, and that has included cutting down of trees and moving construction and equipment and uh, demolishing other uh, objects. The flood control project began controversially and uh, will raise the park by about 10 feet and buttress a new park with a concrete seawall blocking access and even views of the East River for many. The clear-cut trees, most as much as 80 years old, dating from the park's construction in the 1940s, are to be eventually replaced as a city, but with saplings that'll take years to reach maturity. The flood control plan itself The city admits will only temporarily ward off storm surges like those caused in 2012 by Hurricane Sandy, and the park will have to be raised again as soon as mid-century, if not sooner. The project, at more than a billion dollars, was probably the first attempt by a major city to deal directly with sea level rise and storm surges brought on by climate change. It was a disaster from the beginning, and despite Mayor Bill de Blasio's success in pushing it through in the final days of his administration, the political fallout is sure to further divide the community. Supporters of the plan, including City Council member Carlina Rivera and her political club known as CODA, known as a progressive organization, held a news conference to accuse the environmentalist group that had tried to preserve the park of racism, protecting a park at the expense of NYCHA housing. But the environmental group had their own backers among NYCHA residents, arguing the plan was just a sham, intended to push the problem onto future administrations while giving the ambitious mayor a win. Whatever the political outcome, dozens of trees in the southern end of the park have been felled and demolition has begun on a Depression-era amphitheater. Tennis courts have already been ripped up and popular soccer fields are next. Waterfront Access will be cut off, a popular bike path closed just years after a decade-long project to shore up an esplanade with spectacular views along the river. The park will again be shut off from tens of thousands of residents. Activists with the support of state legislators had had called the project a violation of a law called alienation that prohibits the taking of a park for any reason not related to its use as a park, but the courts ruled eventually the residents will get a new and better park. But former park commissioner Adrian Benepe called the city's action an apocalypse. We'll have more on this story as it develops. The Senate today passed a $778 billion defense bill by a vote of 88 to 11. The annual defense policy measure passed for the 61st year in a row now heads to President Biden's desk. It contains $740 billion for the Department of Defense, including funds for procurement of weapons systems from Arleigh Burke class destroyers to F-35 aircraft. 
A Democrat-supported provision expanding the draft to include women was dropped from the compromise measure. Also dropped was an effort to end decades-old authorizations, giving the president broad powers to conduct war without congressional approval. The war on terror, it was associated with the beginning of the war on terror. The bill also includes $27.8 billion for the Department of Energy for rehabilitating nuclear weapons and reforms the Uniform Code of Military Justice, removing commanders from the decision-making process for sexual assault and other serious crimes, also criminalizing sexual harassment in the military for the first time. The bill would authorize $4 billion for the European Deterrence Initiative aimed at Russia and $7.1 billion for the Pacific Deterrence Initiative targeting China. It would also prohibit private fundraising for deployment of a state National Guard to any other state after South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem solicited donations to deploy the Guard, her state's Guard, to the southern border. The bill establishes an independent Afghanistan War Commission to study America's longest war. And in COVID news. This year's holiday season was supposed to make up for last year's subdued celebrations. Instead, it's turning into a a list of or a redo of restrictions, cancellations and rising angst over the never ending pandemic. The quickly spreading Omicron variant has triggered new restrictions on travel and public gatherings reminiscent of 2020. President Joe Biden says COVID is spreading far and wide in the United States and more deaths and hospitalizations are in store, especially for the unvaccinated. Omicron has not yet spread as fast as it would have otherwise done, and that's happening in Europe. But it's here now, and it's spreading, and it's going to increase. For unvaccinated, we are looking at a winter of severe illness and death for unvaccinated. For themselves, their families, and the hospitals, they'll soon overwhelm. But there's good news. If you're vaccinated, you have your booster shot, you're protected from severe illness and death, period. Number two, booster shots work. Three, boosters are free, safe, and convenient. About 60 million people have one, have been boosted. So go get your shot today. Go get boosted if you had your first two shots. If you haven't, go get your first shot. It's time. It's time. It's past time. President Joe Biden, Center for Disease Control and Prevention Chief Dr. Rochelle Walensky had the indicators and the frightening spread of the new variant. The current seven-day daily average of cases is at about 119,500 per day. The seven-day average of hospital admissions is at about 7,800 per day, an increase of about 4% over the prior week. And the seven-day average of daily deaths is at about 1,200 per day, which is at an increase of over 8% from the prior week. Now let me bring you up to date on what we know about Omicron. At least 39 states and over 75 countries have reported confirmed cases of the Omicron variant. And although Delta continues to circulate widely in the United States, Omicron is increasing rapidly and we expect it to become the dominant strain in the United States as it has in other countries in the coming weeks. We've seen cases of Omicron among those who are both vaccinated and boosted, and we believe these cases are milder or asymptomatic because of vaccine protection. 
What we do know is we have the tools to protect ourselves against COVID-19. We have vaccines, we have boosters, and we know multi-layer prevention strategies, masks in public indoor settings, practicing physical distancing, frequent hand washing, improving ventilation, and testing to slow transmission are vitally important, especially as we prepare for more Omicron and even if you are vaccinated and boosted. Dr. Rochelle Walensky of the CDC. Meanwhile, here in the city, Mayor Bill de Blasio said the city has no plans to close the public school system amid the Omicron COVID-19 variant spread, while offering assurance that the city hospitals are well-equipped to handle any potential surge. He laid out a six-point plan. We have seen a very substantial increase in COVID cases in the last few days. And it is clear that The Omicron variant is here in New York City in full force, and we are announcing a series of measures to address this situation. Obviously, we knew Omicron was here, and we knew it was going to be more of a presence in our city. It's now quite clear that it is. But let me go over the plans that we are putting in place now. So I'm going to talk about now a six-pronged approach first. The commissioner will issue a health advisory. He's going to provide very clear guidance on how to keep yourself safe and your loved ones safe, particularly as we go into the holiday season. Second, we're going to be increasing testing capacity. We are creating new new fixed sites for testing. A third, we will be distributing for free 1 million KN95 masks immediately through the Test and Trace Corps, community-based organizations, community-based clinics. Fourth, and working with, again, our community-based organizations, we will be distributing rapid at-home tests. Fifth, uh, we're going to double down on boosters. Uh, The good news is 1.5 million New Yorkers have already gotten a booster shot. We want to see a lot more people get it. Here's the bottom line. we got to stop this variant. we got to stop COVID. we got to continue our recovery. We've been through a lot. We have been through a lot, but New Yorkers keep rising to the occasion. De Blasio says schools are reporting a 1.02% COVID-19 positivity rate. The city's overall infection rate, by comparison, has surpassed 5%. Health Commissioner Dr. Dave Chokshi said the best defense is to get the jab. The facts are very clear. Each new variant makes it more important to get vaccinated rather than less important. So put it another way, as simply as I can, Omicron means the stakes are even higher for each individual to get vaccinated and for us to get as many New Yorkers vaccinated as possible. That's the bottom line. New York City Health Commissioner Dr. Dave Chokshi. And the uh, shifting gears now from COVID and from the United States over to the Caribbean, Uh, the remaining members of a United States missionary group who were kidnapped two months ago in Haiti have been freed. A convoy of at least a dozen vehicles, including United States embassy SUVs and Haitian National Police, brought the missionaries to the Port-au-Prince airport yesterday afternoon from the missionary group's offices north of the capital. Earlier, people at the Christian Aid Ministries campus could be seen hugging each other and smiling. Pastor John Marks had this to say. Sort of received some good news this morning that the last of the hostages in Haiti were free. And we are rejoicing in that. God is good. God has answered our prayers. We are rejoicing. A great load is lifted. 
and we are ready for Christmas. Praise the Lord. From what I gathered, they were treated relatively well. I'm still waiting to hear the rest of their story. I think if there had been any severe problems, any injuries or any illnesses that they had, we would have probably heard. So as far as I know, they're relatively in good health. And those were some sounds from Haiti mixed there at the end of that clip. Pastor John Marks. The missionaries were kidnapped by the 400 Maozo gang on October 16th. There were five children in the group of 16 U.S. citizens and one Canadian, including an eight-month-old. Their Haitian driver also was abducted. The gang's leader had threatened to kill the hostages unless his demands were met, demanding a ransom of $1 million per person, a total of $17 million. It remained unclear whether any ransom was paid or what efforts led to the hostages' freedom. Haitian activist Dahoud Andre has been following the case of the kidnapped missionaries. He says it's still a mystery. What was interesting was interview that was done with the mother of a, a young man who was in the group that was kidnapped. And she was so secretive, she couldn't confirm or deny whether her son had been one of the five who was released. What uh, The list of questions that the reporters had, everything was, I can't say anything about that. I can't say anything about that. And people in Haiti had a sense that this was kind of uh, a montage a scenario, something that was set up that was not real. And for many people, these uh, kidnapped Americans and a Canadian, 16 Americans and one Canadian, that whatever was happening had been resolved more than a month ago, you know, but for whatever reason, the United States did not choose to divulge everything that happened. They didn't want people to know they were paying a ransom and because that might lead well, to others. There were more than 800 kidnappings, known kidnappings that happened in Haiti this year. This is what's been reported. And of course, you can say that a double what was reported is what happened. Because for many families, they don't even go to the police because the kidnappers, they don't want you to go to the police. And if you want to get your family out alive, you do what you have to do. You negotiate and then you get the person out. And in many cases, people were killed and dumped in the street if the money did not come on time or if they did not agree to the, the amount of money that you were able to raise. 400 Maozo gang, who are they? Who is their leader? Are they an important player? 400 Maozo is in the Quadabuke region, in northern part of Port-au-Prince, and they've been around for a while. A few months ago, I don't think it was a year ago, they kidnapped a group of French religious people, priests, nuns, some Haitian religious leaders as well. They have been in the news with high-profile kidnappings for a while now. But they are known as very brutal group who usually carry out their threats. And they've been involved in territory fights with other groups. And they've grown in terms of their 
power over time, the reach that they have in the country, territory that they occupy. This is the first time that such a large group of white people, American citizens, were kidnapped in Haiti. And when he demanded a million for each one, $17 million, people thought that was a lot of money. But everybody was wondering, what is the United States going to do? How are they going to solve this? And at a certain point, we were told that the Haitian government was negotiating and the Haitian government was ready to pay whatever money. We don't know how much money or if money was paid for these people to be released. It's very unlikely that people are kept two months and there were babies, there were elderly folks. And the question is, how did they take care of the special needs of this large group? You just don't go down to uh, with a stack of cash to a supermarket in Haiti and buy out all the food and and starve a whole neighborhood, (laughs) you know, for a month. For many people in Haiti, we did not believe this was a real kidnapping or that the people had stayed for two months. There's a former military colonel who had put out a statement about a month and a half ago, and he said that these people are certainly in the U.S. Embassy waiting for the U.S. to pop out the scenario, and this is what happened. We don't know any more than what's in the newspapers. Haitian activist Dahoud Andre. Christian Aid Ministries is mainly staffed and supported by conservative Anabaptists, members of various Amish, Mennonite, and related churches characterized by plain dress, a belief in non-resistance to violence, and separation from the dominant society. In more national news, the defense wrapped up its case against former Minnesota police officer Kim Potter on trial in the shooting death of a young father, Dante Wright, who was black, on April 11th. You may remember that case involved the former officer pulling a gun and firing it right in his car, thinking she had pulled her taser, a kind of stun gun used by many police departments. Potter testified at her manslaughter trial today that she wouldn't have pulled over his car if she hadn't been training another officer and that she hadn't planned to use deadly force that day. Potter broke into tears on the witness stand. Focused on what you had done. Because you had just killed somebody. I'm sorry it happened. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Ms. Potter, from your reaction today and from your reaction on your video, you didn't plan to use deadly force that day, did you? You didn't want to use deadly force, did you? The objection is overruled. No! I, no! Because you knew that deadly force was unreasonable and unwarranted in those circumstances. I didn't want to hurt anybody! You didn't want to hurt anybody. That's why you said, I'm going to go to prison. I don't. All right. The objection is sustained. Miss Potter, you know the difference between left and right, don't you? The objection is sustained. It's argumentative. Nothing further, Your Honor. 
Potter says she shot right during the uh, April 11th confrontation in Brooklyn Center outside of Minneapolis in a moment of chaos after he tried to leave the scene as she and other officers are trying to arrest him on an outstanding warrant for a weapons violation. If you stop the vehicle in Brooklyn Center and you learn that there is a bench warrant for a weapons violation, you learn that there is a temporary restraining order, a female had lodged against the person that said he was in the car that, that gave his idea. But he really did Mr. Wright ever give a valid identification for himself? No. And the other office now, you've got no valid information. You've got a gross misdemeanor. You've got a temporary restraining order. You got marijuana smelled by your partner. You got no license, no insurance. Would you let that car go if it if you went up to it and were attempting to handcuff the individual and the car he jumped back in? Would you have thought you should let it let him go drive down the street? No. On a temporary restraining order. If you learn there is a temporary restraining order. Is it protocol? Is it policy to, as soon as you learn that, jump out of the passenger side, run up to the car and ask the lady what her name was? Has that ever been heard of in police practice that you know of? No. During her testimony, Potter said she had never tested or practiced with her taser and was unfamiliar with its feel. You didn't test yours a couple days, is that right? Yes, that's what I was told. And uh, do you agree with that, that you didn't test it? I don't recall if I would have or wouldn't have. And was that an important feature for law enforcement officers with new tasers? No. That never used them since they had them? Correct. And while we're there, did you ever use a taser, use it by actually shooting it, in all of your years' career as a law enforcement officer? I would take my taser out on rare occasions, but I don't believe I ever deployed it. Okay, when you take your taser out, it's to de-escalate what is going on? Is that a first statement? Sometimes, or to prepare for what might be behind a door. Sometimes an officer has a gun, and sometimes an officer has a taser out. A taser is made of plastic, colored bright yellow, on the opposite side of the body from an officer's gun. It remains a mystery how Potter, an experienced police officer, would have confused the two. Closing arguments are expected to begin on Monday. And finally, on Capitol Hill, longtime Trump confidant Roger Stone says he's asserted his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination in an interview with the House panel investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection. This morning, in fulfillment of a federal a subpoena, uh, I did my civic duty and I responded as required by law. I did invoke my Fifth Amendment rights to every question, not because I have done anything wrong, but because I am fully aware of the House Democrats' long history uh, of fabricating perjury charges on the basis of comments that are innocuous immaterial or irrelevant. Uh, I question the legitimacy of this inquiry based on the fact that Speaker Pelosi rejected the appointment of Republicans to this committee 
and seated two anti-Republican, anti-Trump Republicans. This is witch hunt 3.0. If the speaker was seriously interested in getting to the bottom of what happened on January 6th, she would release the thousands of hours of videotape taken by government cameras on the incidents of that day. She would also release the audio transmissions of all law enforcement agencies on that day. I stress yet again that I was not on the ellipse. I did not march to the Capitol. I was not at the Capitol. And any claim, assertion, or even implication that I knew about or was involved in any way whatsoever uh, with the illegal and politically counterproductive activities of January 6th is categorically false. What disturbed me is an investigation into my activities on January 5th, which is constitutionally protected free speech, the constitutional uh, right of free assembly, and the constitutional right to redress the, the government regarding grievances. I, I, I don't like to see the criminalization of constitutionally protected political activity. I think it is a slippery slope. Thank you very much, gentlemen, and have a wonderful day. Roger Stone. The committee subpoenaed Stone last month, noting that he spoke at rallies on the day before the insurrection and used members of a far-right extremist group, the Oath Keepers, as personal security guards while he was in Washington. Several members of that militia group broke into the Capitol on January 6th, along with hundreds of other supporters of former President Donald Trump, and have been charged with conspiring to block the certification of the vote. And that's some of the news for Friday, December 17th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.